The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okay, hi there everyone. Um, my name is Daniel McLaughlin. Um, welcome to the, the um, Politics in Pubs podcast. Um, the original conception for this is that we were going to have a, a big discussion in front of a live audience at a pub in Wellington and talk about politics in the media. Um, there isn't really any pubs anymore and uh, there's not really that much politics anymore in the way that we normally talk about it. Parliament is suspended, we're in a state of emergency, and there is less and less media. Um, the, the magazine company Bauer closed in the first week of the lockdown, and another media company just announced massive cuts today. So we're going to kind of talk about, we're going to have politics and media in pubs um, with no pub and, you know, no politics and no media, and, and talk about why that's happened and what that means. So I'm joined today by Andrea Vance and Neil Jones. Um, Andrea is a journalist at um, Stuff, and Neil is a, a lobbyist and political commentator. We're going to be talking about COVID-19, but we're not doctors or epidemiologists, so if any of the others give you medical advice, you shouldn't listen to it. And I also just want to note the, the time and date that we're having this discussion on, just because news is so happening so quickly. So if we say something that sounds obsolete, it's probably probably because it, uh, we recorded this before it happened. So it's midday on Tuesday, the 14th of April. Um, yeah, so welcome welcome to the podcast, Andrea and Neil. Hello, how you doing? How's isolation? It's pretty good. It's isolating. It's boring. That's, I mean, I guess, yeah, if, it's a hard thing to have conversation about because everyone is happening more or less this, having pretty much the same experience of being very, very bored. Is that is that what you're finding? Oh yeah, <laughs> lots of, lots of binge watching, lots of reading, lots of drinking red wine, <laughs> lots of yelling at the telly news. <laughs> what about you, Neil? I'm I'm sort of currently busier than I've ever been because it turns out when the government shuts down the economy, government relations becomes very important at least for a brief period. But um, it, it's it's weird. There's a sort of this. It all blurs. There's no there's no distinction between day and night, between work and home. It just becomes this giant blur of kind of sitting at the dining room table working, and then eventually you realise it's eight o'clock, and um, you should make some dinner because you're hungry. Um, yeah, and I really miss the pub. I really really miss the pub. <laughs> I know. I'm starting to miss people I didn't even like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean about that blurring because we don't. We've kind of just had Easter, and we kind of don't. I mean. That was sort of a holiday, but not really. We don't really have weekends anymore because every day is more or less the same. I mean, I'm having that experience of working from home and homeschooling a child as well, which is very different from the binge watching and drinking wine experience that Andrea has had. <gasps> to be fair. 
fair, I am working, like, I should clarify, we are, I am very, very busy at work, and I, I am having the same experience as Neil, is that you're like, so, suddenly it's dark and you're still working, but, um, but yeah, I don't know, I was thinking about this this morning, because I wonder, obviously we're, we're all really lucky to still have jobs, and God, I count my blessings every day for that, but, um, I wonder like what the nation's productivity will, is like for the people who are still carrying on as normal in their jobs. Because I feel like everyone's working much harder than normal because <laughs> there's no water cooler chats, there's no long lunch breaks, you know? Yeah, work kind of starts at 7am when you get up and check your emails and stops quite late mm. at the night and yeah, there's, there's no boundary anymore. So I... I thought we'd start with an overview and a recap of like what's actually happened politically in New Zealand, because I, I had the experience and it was all a bit of a blur and I was trying to go into lockdown and I was kind of concentrating on, you know, like what was happening globally. And I like, I, I felt like I was experiencing the news, the, the news, the way normal people experiencing it and which it was very peripheral and I didn't really understand anything. So I don't know. I thought maybe Neil, you could start with that. Just kind of like quickly talk us through like what's actually happened in the last month. Wow. Well, it's, it's been extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I think back to sort of February and I was still doing presentations for clients and in the media doing sort of, you know, commentary slots on what does the political year look like? You know, what are the parties looking like? Um, you know, how's what are the big issues? And it's amazing how that has become so completely redundant within a period of weeks. Um, I mean, we've had... It seems it was only a few weeks ago we had the Prime Minister that press conference where she's announced the different levels we were going through. So, you know, level two, level three, level four. And people sort of said, oh, is that really is that really a good use of, you know, a national um, announcement? Like, did she really have anything to say there? It's just announcing some levels. I think we had no idea how much those levels would impact every single part of our life in the weeks to come. So, you know, we've, we've now had parliaments being suspended. We've had national emergency has been declared. We have... Um, you know, businesses shut down. We have a million people on a wage subsidy. Um, they they are truly unprecedented times. We've even had Simon Bridges decide to become constructive, um, which I think is you know possibly the most remarkable thing in all this. So it's it's been I think an unprecedented time that none of us would have ever expected either. Um, if you'd said to me you know a few years ago during your lifetime there will be a war, I would have said yeah okay I, that's I can't really imagine that, but I, I can I can see that maybe happening. I don't think any of us ever expected to be spending a month stuck inside our houses hiding from a pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's funny what you say about Simon Bridges because, you know, we have the special select committee, which is really the oversight into anything that the government is doing. And I, I haven't watched any of it, and maybe you two have, and you could speak to that. But my understanding, my impression talking to people is that it actually works better than question time and that the opposition <laughs> asks difficult and serious questions and the government listens to them and, and changes its mind about what it's doing and it's kind of functioning the way adversarial politics was always meant to work but never has for many many generations agreed i think there's less of the um less of the theater involved like i feel like politicians on both sides have adapted to the seriousness of it and realized how important this select committee is to kind of maintain this semblance of normality and democracy in a parliamentary system and also I think probably it's more constructive because it's not just politicians point scoring they're actually there to 
get information and there are, and there are experts so there are government government officials and experts and academics who are answering questions as well so it's not just politicians squabbling amongst each other so it's been actually quite i haven't followed all of it because jesus i I do have a life but um (laughs) but um outside you know it's it's much more enjoyable to watch than the than the petty kind of theater of question time so yeah i i think it's like it, it was lauded around the world when they introduced it people just thought it was a fantastic um way to continue with democracy and i and i think rightly so it's been a very useful um service i often think about this um line the one of the authors of um yes minister and yes prime minister used to get asked why they didn't do question time in the show and they said because my show is about politics and government and question time is theater and I want to show how politics and government really works, not the theatre of how people, you know, politicians pretend that it works. And so it kind of seems like we're getting like a, a rare glimpse into, yeah, into government itself instead of the theatre around it. Yeah, and I think select committees have always been a bit more constructive. Anyone who, who goes to select committees realises it's a far more collaborative, constructive um, and productive setting. I think the gravity of the situation probably helps as well. I think the politicians realise there's very little public appetite for sort of gotcha politics or um, that kind of empty theatre. But I, I think they should actually consider using this kind of format more um, after this because I agree with Andrea around um, question time. I think, I mean, it's a bear pit. It's basically, it's about MPs preening themselves, about trying to monster the opposition or monster the government. Um, and it's all about gotcha grabs, you know, at, at best, the only thing it really contributes is maybe like, you know, one news might pop up a um, a clip of, you know, Simon Bridges, you know, na- you know, puts grills the Prime Minister or PM puts Bridges in his place or some silliness like that. I don't think we get anything, I don't think we really elicit any useful information very often from Question Time. And I think it actually turns the public off politics. When people watch Question Time, which very few do, they tend to just walk away disillusioned. Um, and even as a parliamentary staffer, I used to find it was a, a tremendous waste of our time and resource for very little, for very little, you know, for very little actual practical outcome. Um, I, I think I think this kind of select committee where you can call not just ministers, but also call officials, um, call independent experts, and actually delve into those issues a bit deeper is a far better accountability mechanism than question time. I, I would hate to see question time disappear, though, because I, I do I do agree with you. That, and when I was covering day to day politics, I, I much preferred doing select committees than um, question time because you do get so much more information out of it. And it, it, it's a, just a much more pleasant atmosphere. But sometimes question time is the only way where you can elicit answers to really difficult, tricky um, questions. Like I, I, I'm trying to think, you're right, hardly anyone watches it outside the Thorndon bubble, but, um, oh, that's the, the, you know, the old concept of bubble, not the new one. Um, <laughs> um, the, um, the uh, you know, the Claire Curran um, gotcha by Melissa Lee, uh, uh, oh God, it seems like an eternity ago, but that probably wouldn't have happened but for the fact that she was publicly put under pressure and forced to answer a question like you, it's, you know, so for that reason, I think I would hate to see it be got rid of entirely. But I do agree with you that it is an, it's an extraordinary waste of official ministerial officials time. Like you spend two to three hours on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday morning prepping for it. And then you've got to prep your minister. And it does seem like an, ext- for, for something that doesn't really 
give you much gain other than, as you say, like a grab on the TV news or once a year a really good question gets answered and someone is actually held accountable. So yeah, maybe after all of this, maybe we should, you know, sit down and look at question time and maybe reform it and make it a bit more constructive. And as Neil says, like a, a little more palatable to the, to the public because it is a turn off, definitely. So Andrea, I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about what's happening to the media during all of this. Um, <laughs> because it seems like there's this horrible irony here, which is that the pandemic is this incredibly important story and it's never been more important to inform the public and, and audiences for you know media content has never been larger. But more and more of the people that are doing that job and producing that content are just losing their jobs because the revenue base for the industry is, is just collapsing. Is that kind of, <laughs> yeah, is that what's happening? Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're right. Like it's, um, it is extraordinary because we are busier than ever um, and our, like our traffic um, has gone, you know, through the roof. More and more people are, are um, reading and watching and um, just the appetite for news is voracious at the moment. Um, and we're all kind of on this hamster wheel of trying to provide more stories and keep up with the information and it's such an ever-changing environment like all the advice is changing all the time and it's so and it's also 24 7 but at the same time so I've been a journalist for 20 about 20 years now and I have never worked in a time where I haven't felt like my job was insecure but it's just the environment that journalists work in now but at the moment this is all we can talk about like it's constantly on our minds we're looking for every scrap of information and and my heart goes out to those people at Bauer and uh, at the Herald today. You know that people are losing jobs, um, which is which is horrendous, and it just throws into light what's been going on in the media since you know twenty thirty years. Um, the change in the revenue model, and it's just sort of hastened that. You know, we um, we need to think of new ways of doing our business. Um, so some of the companies that have more uh viable models are, are not suffering as much but pretty much everyone's um you know kind of shouldering the burden at the moment it's it's really sad but at the, at the same time like people are really relying on us for information and at times when you know you've got misinformation about vaccines misinformation about the um the pandemic and symptoms and all those things and then um you know things like 5g conspiracies and government conspiracies i think never has there been more time to reassure people and put clear facts out there and um you know constantly be challenging the government but yeah it's pretty grim and i'm i have no answers for what we're going to do about it whenever this conversation comes up about you know who do you trust and trust the media trust in the media because it's incredibly it's very intellectually fashionable to kind of critique the media and say it's biased and, and it's everything it's all a lie and i've seen lots of people i looked on social media this morning and people are happy that you know like journalists are losing their jobs because it's I, I don't know you're sort of perpetuating the i don't know <laughs> the, the grand lie that is modern life and i always think there's this joan didion wrote this essay called slouching towards bethlehem she goes to san francisco in the 1960s and there's that same kind of culture of intense distrust of the media and, you know, that the, the media is poison, that it's poisoning everyone's minds. 
And she kind of says to them, well, who do you listen to instead? Where do you get your news from instead? And they listen to like their guru who is telling them to give their children LSD so that they'll get enlightened and that kind of thing. And it's where you see the same dynamic playing around out here that the people who are saying, oh, we can't trust the media because it's all a lie. You know, instead I'm going to trust this like celebrity conspiracy theorist on Twitter. And he's telling me that if I drink bleach, then I can vaccinate myself against COVID or that if we go out and smash all the cell phone towers, we'll be safe. And, uh, but, uh, you know, in the 1960s when Didium was writing, there was still a, um, like a viable business model for the media. And that's, that's yeah, it's vanishing as we speak. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the things I notice on social media a lot. I got myself into a little bit of a tiff with some of the left the other day. Um, got messy. <laughs> yes, we're... Uh, I, I can't I, imagine I the might... left squabbling on Twitter. This, this is so <laughs> I know, unusual. I just... <laughs> um, this crazy new world we live in. No, I um, and and it was because I defended um the media actually at that at the press conference with actually Bloomfield and Jacinda Ardern, which I, I, I look, I'm I'm not um naive here. I, I have my criticisms of various articles from time to time and structural issues in the media, but I think there is a dangerous tendency we're seeing towards viewing criticisms of the of the government as some kind of partisan plot, and. Um, that leads to Trumpism and it leads to a breakdown of our democratic order. And I think that the glee I saw today from some people about, you know, New Zealand Herald cutting 15% of its staff, um, that's, I mean, apart from the human thing of there are actual people here who have families to feed and, and, and you know, rent to pay, there's actually a democratic issue here, which is if, exactly what you point out, Daniel. If we're not, if we're not going to have actually people who are employed to through best endeavours inform the public and and look into these things, then it's going to be your, you know, your friend or your cousin posting 5G conspiracies to Facebook um, who gets who has more influence here. So I think I think it's really important that we all recognise that we have a crisis in, in, in how we fund media, that we have to do something about it, and that the media, while we can we can each individually complain about, you know, various issues in the media and they're all human and Andrea aside, you know, there are, general, you know, there are times there are times when, when I look at things journalists do and I think that's outrageous, that's stupid or whatever, because they're human beings. Um, are but... you saying I'm not human? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to compliment you, I'm sorry. I'm, um, one, of the, but... I'm one of those lizards. <laughs> <laughs> You've just well, confirmed it's... every media conspiracy. That's right. It's, it's not 5G, Damn it's the lizard people. Um <laughs> But, but yeah, we, we actually have to have a bit of a mature discussion about this, about the role of media in our society and how we fund it. And I, I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, I think probably the money money has to come from government. And then the challenge there is how do you do that in a way that doesn't either just delay the inevitable decline of a broken model and, that do, and also that doesn't lead to the government getting undue influence over a institution that's supposed to hold the government to account. And that's a discussion that we were struggling to have as a country before COVID broke out, um, with the whole NZME stuff issue. Um, and I think has become even more urgent now because if these lockdowns continue or the restrictions continue and businesses continue to not be able to operate and advertising budgets dry up, um, I think we'll see an acceleration of those trends we've already been seeing. And it might need some creative thinking about what we do. Yeah, I agree. Definitely creative thinking. God, I wish I had the answers. But um, it's... Um... Yeah, it's kind of funny that the um, impetus is for the government to do something or come up with an answer or all of us collectively um, kind of as well as hastening our demise. It's also hastening, um, like I say, that impetus for government to tackle it because the government needs the media 
uh, you know, now more than ever because they need a reliable source of of getting information like you there's only so much you can do with facebook and um and other you know forms of new media digital media like the traditional media is still very important in getting the message and you know the um stressing how important the rules are um out there so yeah it's, it, it, from that point of view then i i think yes it's a disaster for media but at the same time it could it could also be our savior as well providing that you know government and the media combined can come up with a an answer that is sustainable um, and and also will have the backing of the public because I think that's important too. We can't you can't just um, pour huge amounts of money into a a broken system and expect the the public to you know go along with it. And I do think I do think that but the media has a role to play in that because it is definitely an issue that trust in the media has declined, and that's partly partly because of new media and. Um, you know, people have much more of a voice and are, are able to um, put their own opinions and their own, um, you know, take on things. And also citizen journalism has sort of eroded trust a little bit. But also the way that we do things like there, you can, as budgets have declined and resources have declined, it's almost it's inarguable that um, really good quality investigative journalism has suffered. And, and we have in many cases like most of us are trying really hard but we have sort of substituted it for quick and easy and dirty scandal coverage and and um stuff you know that's swiped off social media or, or that later proves that because no one did the proper checks or spent a lot of time on it it's only half the story that kind of thing so i do think that and also you know um there's a there's a a way of doing journalism, political journalism now, where we just recite what politicians say. We're kind of mouthpieces for politicians and we regurgitate press releases. And and that way we're also part of misinformation and that we're circulating um, bad information or misinformation. Yes, it might start with a politician, but we're part of that problem. And so I do think maybe that the media has to accept that trust is eroded and we have to rebuild that and accept some responsibility if we're going to go down the road of accepting government money. Okay, anyway, that's my little lecture over. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. This podcast was brought to you by the Spinoff Members, a new program that allows readers to contribute to the future direction of our coverage. Facilitate the most important and hard-to-fund journalism. To find out more or become a member, visit thespinoff.co.nz forward slash members. Bye. So, so there's this conversation at the moment and it's playing out in the media and it's this conversation about um, the, the lockdown versus the economy and there's kind of like a, a very dumb version of this conversation and quite a substantive one. Um, and it's kind of been, I guess, like um, thrown into relief today. Treasury have announced their their um, models of what the economy is going to look like under COVID-19. And I haven't really gone through it line by line, but some of them just look completely horrific with one in mm. four people out of work and, um, you know, like losing 20% of GDP or 30% of GDP, which is when you have, you start to run into the a kind of scenario in which you have like really quite severe poverty poverty in the country, um, diseases of poverty, um, you know, like really almost apocalyptic scenarios. So um, what, what, what have you kind of seen of that debate? I, I, you know, how's, how's, it, how's it playing out? What does it sound like? 
I mean, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the time people giving very strong reckons based on their pre-existing beliefs rather than looking at the evidence, I think. Um, particularly, I saw Gareth Morgan last night, uh, Mr. Evidence-Based Policy himself. He's got on, he's got a, he's got on quite, a, quite a journey, hasn't he? From, I don't think, from, yeah. from telling us that we're morons because we're not in lockdown to telling us that we're morons because we are in lockdown without really spelling out how he got from one to the other. I don't think Gareth's coping very well with lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> He misses his motorbike. But no, I mean, last <laughs> night he was coming up with a, a fake figure of $10,000 per life based on Pharmac, which is just completely made up, um, and, and trying to do facts, sums around that. I think today's figures from Treasury show that the best economic course is to go hard and go early. Um, I think often it's a there's a sort of a false narrative put out there that it's the economy versus um, public health. Um, the worst possible thing, according to Treasury figures today, would be to let the virus get a strong foothold and be in and out of lock, lockdown for months on end. Um, that's where you would get the most damaging um, economic, you know, economic impact on business. Um, and that's where you get that sort of 26% unemployment figure is when, when we're in and out of serious lockdown. The best thing we can do is just get rid of it and try to have some sense of normality behind sort of this moat of the Tasman Sea in the Pacific until there's a vaccine. Um, I think there's also a simple moral principle here, which I know, you know, doesn't quite fit in the economic discussion, but I think there is something to be said about, you know, knowingly letting tens of thousands of New Zealanders die, um, which is, you know, would be more than both world wars combined. And I think that's something that no politician can actually do in good conscience if they have a choice. And I know that weighed very heavily for Jacinda Ardern when she got that, she saw that University of Auckland modelling saying up to 80,000 dead if we didn't take action. Um, so I think that's I think it's not morally, economically or politically tenable to take any other course of action than what we have. The key thing I think is to make sure it actually works. Um, the, the the disaster politically and from a public health and economic perspective would be if we did this big lockdown, we didn't see it through properly, and then we had flare ups again and again and again. But all that said, I think I see. I think there's a problem with this and. Um, this framing it as a debate of economy versus lots of lives because there's nothing wrong in having the discussion about the 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 collapse or the demise of the economy and the impact that's going to have on the most vulnerable in society just because you're having that conversation and saying well what about Maori what about Pacifica what about low socioeconomic families that doesn't mean to say that you're suggesting that what the government's doing is wrong but it's okay to question it and it's okay to look at all the scenarios and it's and it's all right it, i make mean, it's absolutely our imperative especially in the media to discuss you know it's fair it's all very well for me and my Wedstown bubble and my well-stocked pantry and I still have a job but if I was living in a garage in South Auckland in lockdown I suspect I would be having a very different experience um and so i think it's really important for, for the media to keep um you know talking about the other experience, other people who are having different experiences across the whole of society and how that's having an impact on them. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily translate as, as a criticism of what the government's doing, because I think most reasonable people see that there was no other option. So I, I talked to um, people in the government this morning, just, just about this topic to see what their perspective was. Um, I, I, I reached, I tried to talk to people in the National Party, but no one returned my calls, which kind of tells you where the, where the spin-off stands and <laughs> how much. They're, they're probably driving down all well, the things in Wellington. Like it's a long but, trip. Um, but, you know, the, the, the phone is still open to them. Um, but so <laughs> the, the, the point that they, that I kind of got from those conversations was that 
is that there are these three different problems, these three challenges that are in tension with each other. And one is that we're in lockdown and that, you know, we, we have, I think, about 1,200 people who I think have the virus and some of them have recovered and a, a small number have died. But there are like an unknown number of people out there who are pro well, probably asymptomatic or very mild carriers of the disease um, of the virus and they don't know they're sick and they won't get tested because they don't need to and that the government just has no visibility to them. And when you come out of lockdown, if you come out too early, then they, you know, go back to school or they go back to work or whatever. And you, you know, you like have a pandemic a, a month later and you go back into lockdown again. Um, and every day that you're in lockdown increases the chances of that those people will get better, that they're no longer shedding the virus. And so that's kind of what you, you know, you gain from the lockdown, but each day that you gain, but each day that you're in the lockdown, um, you have all this economic and social costs. You have the businesses that are going bankrupt and you have all the domestic violence and you have all of these terrible social impacts. And you also start to lose the social license for the lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, people yeah. just feel like, yeah, but, but because like you say, you know, you're in like a small house with a large family and you, you just don't want to do it anymore. You see that mm -hmm. the case numbers start to go down. It starts to feel pointless. Teenagers want to just go out and hang out with their friends or, or you know, yeah, people want to go fishing or whatever. And so it's almost like the government is kind of playing chicken against these two different factors. One is these kind of asymptomatic carriers in which you want to extend the lockdown to try and minimize them. And then the public just really losing interest in the, the project. And um, yeah, there's this very, very narrow window that they're trying to drive through in which you eliminate the virus before, um, yeah, you kind of, yeah, you lose the buy-in for it. Yeah, I, w I wonder about that as well. And m much as I'm grateful to the government to setting down the length of time that w that they anticipated, like, I thought that was excellent for us all um, to give us some kind of perspective on it. But I do wonder if um, they have to turn around and announce that we're, we're going into lockdown for a bit longer. I wonder how many people that you will keep on board because, as you say, the cases are going down and... Um, People are, you know, while you can convince people so long with hashtag be kind and we're all in this together, I think people's selfish natures will come to the surface after a while. And especially when there doesn't seem to be that visibility of cases. Um, so, that yeah, it's a double edged sword in announcing that time frame. Um, and then if they do have to go, if they do have to put us back down into lockdown, um, then, that yeah, that would be. It would be very. I think it would be very difficult to enforce. I mean, it's it's been difficult enough to enforce. You see, lots of people breaking the rules. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting experiment and a test of Jacinda's famed communication, communication skills. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I often suspect those communication skills are more valued by quite a small number of media mm. elites than the rest of the country. Yes. See, I, I've been thinking about this and chatting with some other journals about this. And I, like, having gone through the John Key government and his famed communication skills as well, I just I just wonder how much different it would have been. Like, I, I, I you know, you can't deny that Jacinda is an excellent communicator. Um, but also, John Key was as well. And I, I just wonder if he was in charge at this time. You know, I, I suspect that we probably would have had the same levels of compliance and probably the same levels of success. So I'm, I'm, much as, you know, we have to admire how she's handled it and she's, you know, an extraordinary leader. I, I, I just wonder, you know, how it would have been different under different governments. I, sus I suspect in a crisis, John Key would have been perfectly 
good at that job as well. I think, we, I mean, we've been quite blessed in New Zealand that between Clark, Key and Ardern, regardless of our political views, have all been very competent um, prime ministers who have been good in a crisis. Um, you forgot Bill English. <laughs> he was only there. He was, he was there. he was there very briefly. Um, but but I, but I think. Um, I think though we can't we can't ignore that. If, uh, I dare, you know I dare I sound like a partisan hack here. I think we can't ignore the fact that Jacinda Ardern has done a remarkable job. If you look at other countries, um, the the polling I haven't got the figures on me right now, but the polling shows that New Zealanders' support for the government's action has been significantly higher than in other countries. Um, we are also, I think, we have a far less, and that's partly Jacinda Ardern, partly it's our political culture. We've had a far less divi- divisive political culture, I think. So that we've had, we haven't had that kind of mistrust. I think New Zealanders, um, whether it's John Key, whether it was Jacinda Ardern, have sort of, by and large, apart from the most rusted-on partisans, been able to say, "Hey, they're the prime minister, and I'll trust them, and you know, I'll put my faith in them." Um, during this crisis, I think you're not seeing the same thing in the US, for example. Um, even the UK and Australia are far more divided. Um, so we're lucky in that respect, I think, both because of leadership and because of our political culture. Do you think, I totally agree with that, definitely leadership and culture. And, and as you say, like, especially the UK and, and the US have been extraordinary, extraordinarily divided in recent times. But also, do you, I wonder if it's partly to do with the immense amount of confusion around the rules and the restrictions in, in Australia, the US and the UK, like, you know, Whatever you think of how the level one to four was delivered, um, it was a very effective way of getting people to understand what we have to do, when we have to do it. Whereas, and yes, there have been some confusion around the rules about what is a bubble, who can be in the bubble, and can you fish or not off your lawn. But, um, but, um, but I wonder. I wonder if it's if it's partly that that New Zealand was very effective in demonst- in in sort of setting out what we all have to do to make this work very early. Um, you know, in in the play. I don't know. Anyway, I'd- but but I mean, I, I guess that goes back again to communication skills. I mean, what was the PM's conference press conference to the nation when she held that national address and later walked talked us through that four level alert system, but a communication device to the public to say here's what's coming, here's what it means, here's what will trigger it, and here's how we're going to do it together. Um, I, I agree. I thought the level one to four was, was a fantastic idea. I thought it was, you know, it, it will go down in communications textbooks. Um, uh, you know, it, it was very effective. I did not think delivering an address to the nation was the best way to do it, though, because I know lots of people... It was a Saturday. Lots of people felt an, an awful lot of alarm, and then and a bit like afterwards, a bit like, oh, was that it? Like, yes, it was a good way to communicate it, but in a national broadcast, like she was the queen. Oh, I'm not sure that was the best use of it. But I mean, that's you know, that's just petty, mm. petty arguing around the margin. It doesn't really matter what I think because it worked. So yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh no, I just like, what's the point of me being here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I, I thought that it also might be interesting to kind of talk through what politics might look like um, when we come out of lockdown, if we come out of lockdown in nine days, I think we have left, or if we have another couple of weeks. And I wonder if that is when, like, assuming that it kind of goes well and that we manage to, um, you know, like we have minimal or zero community transfer, which would be almost like a kind of a unique position in the world. Um, it might not happen, but you know, um, presu- assuming it does, 
it, it sort of feels like we then go back to politics as normal because we'll be talking about what a reconstruction looks like and everyone will just say that their sort of pre-existing values and ideology will be the right way to kind of reconstruct the country and New National will say we need to get business working again and Labour will want, will want to build lots and lots of houses <laughs> by the sound of it. Um, so yeah, is that, and, and I don't know, yeah, like I, I wonder if we should just sort of talk through the separate parties starting with Labour and try and figure out what the, the kind of post-lockdown political scenario looks like. Mm. I, I think, um, I mean, assuming we don't, assuming we do return to some sort of normality and it's a big assumption, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen around the world. Uh, I mean, we we are looking at, I mean, one in 10 American workers applied for unemployment assistance in the last three weeks. Um, we know that we're looking at a Great Depression scenario potentially in terms of unemployment around the world. Then that could lead to all kinds of um, political upheavals. So we don't, I mean, with that caveat, um, assuming there's some sort of return to normality, I think Labour, the, within Labour there's a certain, um, I think for a lot of people, a certain cockiness that Jacinda Ardern's going to get us through the crisis, Grant will get us through the immediate economic impacts, and a thankful public will return a stonking Great Labour majority in September, assuming there's an election. Um, there's some truth there. I know that there's been a UMR poll being sort of circulated around that shows Labour in the high 40s, National at 35, and that's also sent some shockwaves through the National Caucus. Um, and if there's an election tomorrow, I think that sort of result wouldn't be out of the question, but I think you know, fast forward six months, there is a scenario where unemployment's at 15%, businesses are collapsing left, right and centre, people are getting tired of lockdown restrictions, and that kind of situation doesn't really work for an incumbent government. Um, I think where Labour will try, what they'll try and do is what they've signalled, which is an infrastructure-led recovery, lots of job-rich uh, projects that soak up jobs, um, and and basically try and do that Michael Joseph Savage thing. There's no, you know, Graham Robson's been very explicit that he sees the first Labour government as his inspiration for what is coming. Um, and Jacinda Ardern has a photo of Michael Joseph Savage above her desk. So I think that will be that will be Labour's challenge to make people feel that although there is, you know, the economy is not doing great and there are hard times, the government is actually making an impact in their lives and making their lives better than it would otherwise be. And I think um, to pick up on that, I think that this, if assuming that they can get through this, and I think, you know, you could, I think I would argue that Grant Robertson has been pretty faultless in this, like his response has been um, pretty good up until now. There is the chance for Labour to completely turn around that narrative that has dominated for countless political cycles that Labour is rubbish at the economy. Um, and so, so, you know, I think it's fair to say that when Grant Robertson first stepped in to the finance role in opposition, People were a little bit sceptical about his skills, but ironically, he could be the one to completely decimate that narrative. Um, and also, I think a lot of people, regardless of their political stripes, will be very grateful that it is a Labour government that is unlikely to pursue measures of austerity to get us out of an economic hole. You know, like the measures that we went through after the GFC are probably less likely under Labour than they would have been under National. So it'll be, it's just going to be really interesting to chart how, how they handle the economy and how the public um, the public's perceptions are, are shaped by that. But equally, I agree with what Neil says. It's, it could be um, the longer the amount of time that elapses between lockdown ending and the election taking place, um, the more tricky it is for Labour because people are just quite rightly going to get pissed off with you know the way things are. Um, 
And but I do I do think if Labour can carry it through, I think what's probably going to happen with their support parties is they they might become less relevant, and um, Labour might have more of a chance of coming back with a strengthened, you know, Labour uh, caucus. Yeah, I saw those. Sorry, go. I think that is a really important point you make about the narrative around Labour. There are a couple of things that have really dogged Labour. Um, and I, I know this very well from my time sitting in focus group land, which is um, a horrible place. I hope neither of you ever had to go. Um, <laughs> oh, I'd love a sneak peek. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two of the things that really harm Labour, a sense of economic credibility being just in the toilet. And that's from, um, that goes back to the GFC. I mean, it's always, left parties are always seen as less competent on the economy than the right. But after the GFC, the public blamed Labour for the economic collapse. Um, and no matter how much you explained it, they just believed Labour had spent all the money and blown the debt out and could not be trusted with the economy. And working class people genuinely believed that Labour would make their lives worse economically because they would crash the economy and they'd lose their jobs. So if Labour handles this well, I think there's a chance to turn that around, as you say. If they handle it badly, it could go the other way and just reinforce that narrative. The other one's the competence narrative, which has come up very strongly in government, which is um, Nationals had a very successful run on this, which is saying, look at Kiwi Build, look at light rail, look at other things. They talk a big game, but they just aren't up to the job. And it's time to let the adults back in charge. And I think if they can, again, if they can get through the public health and the economic crises looking competent, that'll that'll help to Labour to undermine that narrative that's played so bad against them. I was I looking at one... the... Sorry, go. Oh, I was just going to say, I think I think what just uh, that competence thing, um, I think there is a danger that because Jacinda and Grant have fronted, that's very informal, <laughs> sorry, the finance minister and the prime minister have, have fronted this crisis. It does exacerbate that um, perception that National have successfully created, as you say, of of painting some of the Labour ministers as being quite not quite up to the job. And I think when you've got things like... Um, you know, David Clark's blunder and the Deputy Prime Minister, you know, tweeting pictures of him fishing from his beach house in the middle of a global pandemic. I think there is a there is a real danger that it looks like Labour doesn't have um, behind the key ministers, doesn't have that adequate team. So it, it is one um, weakness. If I was Nationals, you know, in doing national strategy, I'd probably want to uh, look at that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's that's a perception that's possibly not just unique to national, that there's a kind of a very, very um, strong core of senior ministers and senior staffers who, I mean, my impression is that the, the entire government is now being run by a very small number of people and that that's going well at the moment, especially because a lot of it inv does involve sticking the prime minister in, a, in front of a camera and, uh, you know, having it tell us to be kind but that that is not a sustainable project long-term, that at some stage you have to let ministers kind of govern their portfolios again, and that's that's when things will get extremely difficult, and that's when there'll be lots of opportunities for the opposition. The other thing that I, I kind of wanted to say about those Treasury statistics, looking at them today, is that it, it reminded me of a lot of the political science that you see in the US about um, the role that um, the economy and perceptions of economic competence have, and one of the kind of rules is that for every 1% of GDP, an incumbent government loses about 2% of um, popularity. And the Treasury statistics have us, I think, dropping 20% of our GDP. So that's like just kind of, yeah, like if that happened, then that would, that would be, um, yeah, obviously quite a poor outcome for the government. But also that voters tend to have lots of quite strange and irrational 
attitudes towards holding governments accountable um, in a way that Neil just described in one of the classic studies was shark attacks. If you had shark attacks in beaches and tourist towns in the US, then the kind of the, the incumbent governor um, would lose that town in the subsequent election, just because not not because the the voters blamed the governor the governor for the shark attack, but just because you know it, it had an economic impact. Businesses closed, people just felt that they weren't being governed well, and so they kind of held the government accountable. So there, so there's like a, a terrifying glimpse, potential <laughs> terrifying glimpse into the future of the Labour Party. Oh my God, just pray there's not going to be any shark attacks. Well, yeah, like, we, could, we couldn't cope with that as well. <laughs> that is the logical next step, isn't it? <laughs> but this is the moment the sharks have been waiting for when we're at our most vulnerable. <laughs> Ashley Bloomfield has to front a press conference. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, Sharknado. Oh my God, that's such a great movie. <laughs> so, and you you kind of mentioned the, the support parties in there. Um, yeah, Greens and New Zealand first. It's always kind of hard to tell what's going to happen with either of them. But um, yeah, like how how relevant will they seem and and during the reconstruction period, I guess is is the, the relevant question for them. I think the Greens have a really good opportunity, which is that it's really important when we're spending tens of billions of dollars on infrastructure that there's actually a green recovery. I think the risk that we face is. We end up doing these projects that short term we need to soak up unemployment, but that lock in emissions for decades to come. And the last thing the Greens want is a situation where we lose a decade um, to just trying to deal with an economic crisis because we don't have a decade to lose on climate change. So I think there's actually a really important role for them to play there. Whether that's electorally going to give them any dividends is hard to say. Uh, there will always be as well, um, there'll be a lot of pain and suffering over the next 12 months and I think um, and over the next six months and I think the Greens are always in a position to push harder and faster than than, than Labour might want to um, so there is a potential there to appeal to people in Labour's left, front, left flank um, and I think they'll need to find a way to do that constructively so that they are not eclipsed by Jacinda Ardern which is their risk as long as Jacinda Ardern is leader of the Labour Party. Um, it, it, you're right it, it does give the Greens that extra point of difference that I think they could probably capitalize on in the election campaign. But I just am really struggling to, to, well, I always say that it, in New Zealand, cause New Zealand politics has been so crazy since I arrived here. Like I, I never, I just never think that you should try and predict the outcome of election. Cause it's just, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'm really struggling to see where New Zealand first fits into this. Cause it, like, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that um, Winston Peters diplomats have done a very good job in getting Kiwis home. Like that announcement yesterday about India was, you know, a huge achievement for MFAT. Um But he has, apart from exacerbating the um, existence of tensions within cabinet, I don't think he's had much to contribute and neither have the rest of New Zealand first um, to what's been going on. So I, yeah, I, I just, I wonder you never rule out Winston, obviously, in an election, but I just wonder what their place is and how people will view them after this. I think Shane Jones will try to make himself central in the infrastructure build. He's got both the infrastructure minister hat and his regional development hat. And I, I mean, if you look at their strategy, it's been, I don't think it's been very successful, but their strategy has been to be the champion of regional New Zealand and to deliver basically money to the regions and say, look, we're giving you money and jobs. 
and nice stuff. And I think he's got tens of billions of dollars to do this now. So I think he'll try and be as central as possible as he can in that. But again, whether that actually leads people to voting New Zealand first is another question. Uh, but will will I mean Labour would be absolutely daft if they let him away with that though, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I, I get, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to just be Shane by himself running around the country. It'll be Shane with Grant Robertson and others. But um, <laughs> and Phil Twyford, they'll be elbowing each other off those little <laughs> regional flights. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but yeah, look. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a natural um, pathway to success for New Zealand first out of this. There's a there's a risk of them they get just left by the wayside. And the and the interesting question that we're you know is all all sort of back of mind at the moment, but the 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 generational differences that this has thrown up, like we obviously we're, we're going back to that question of economy versus health, but it is you know it's inarguable that the um the younger generations are are going to suffer from this you know from a, a, you know for a much longer um period of time, and there is a, a level of inequity there. So I wonder will they be punished? Because they are seen as the party of party of boomers, <laughs> the party. Well, party I wonder, of... well, I wonder if that's his his um, campaign that he takes um, into the election, which is that his core constituency just doesn't have to make any sacrifices. That there are no cutbacks, and in fact, there are you know we're going to increase superannuation, or um, that that yeah that, that 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 would be the premise of his campaign. Yeah, and and it's fair to say that elderly people are more likely to get out and vote, whereas you know the the youth quake of the last election never actually happened. So, um, yeah, so yeah, you're prob you're probably right. You might well exploit that base. Um, but it's going to be so fascinating. Well, I think it's going to be really difficult for National to um to strike that balance between being accountable and then not chasing and barking after every car and you know looking not very constructive and just a bit churlish so and also to raise their profile because you know apart from his um long road trips and chairing the you know his involvement in the select committee he's been largely invisible um, and paul goldsmith has had probably more constructive things to say um during covid19 than simon bridges really has so it's, it's going to be really fascinating how they reposition themselves and and regain ground for the election campaign i think for national um i mean they've they've done actually, i think a pretty good job the last couple of weeks i think they had a just horrendous start to yeah. COVID. um <laughs> bonfire regulations being the answer bridges speech after grant's economic package um that was genuinely horrendous. Um, I think they've they've really. I mean, Paul Goldsmith, I think, probably had a role in that. They've they've got a lot more constructive and productive. I I, I have my my quibbles about this and that, but I think on by and large they've done a, a good job holding the government to account. Um, I think for the election, I don't think people are going to want negativity and, and griping. I think we were looking at a very negative, dirty campaign based on sort of gotcha, silly attack videos and all that. I don't think we're going to see that if, if they're sensible. If I were running national strategy, I'd go for the Clement Attlee approach, which is, you know, Winston Churchill, one World War Two, towering figure, lost the following election to Labour. And I think, in, and the question in that election was, sure, Winston's won the, won the war, good on him, but who can, who's the best, who's best place to manage the recovery? And so if I were national, I would probably be basing an election campaign on saying, look, Jacinda Ardern did a very good job in the immediate crisis, and, and credit to her for that. But now the economy's, you know, going down the drain. We have mass unemployment. We have businesses shutting down everywhere. Um, we need, you know, who th this this election is about which party is best placed to manage the economic recovery. And National's done that before after the GFC and will do it again following COVID. 
and we will get business moving, we'll get people in jobs, and we'll get the economy back on track. And I think that's probably a reasonably compelling message from National in this election campaign. I'm not saying it'll be successful, but if the government does a reasonably good job getting us out of this, I think that's probably the only viable strategy they have to victory. Neither of you have mentioned the ACT Party, I can't believe. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think for ACT, the only, I mean, if, if, if their ideology wasn't already dead, I think it's probably dead now. I think the only thing that will work for ACT is if Simon Bridges continues to be leader of the opposition and continues and continues to be unpopular, because that, I think that is where their, their current kind of 2% in, in some polls is coming from, is people who are on the right but can't stomach Bridges as Prime Minister. I think if he if he pulls out of this well or he gets replaced by someone more palatable, I think acts in serious trouble. If he if he if he kind of blunders his way or remains invisible through this, act has some kind of um, potential there to pick up some of his vote. But I don't think anyone's gonna be voting I don't think any any significant number of people are gonna be voting for a party that believes in slashing the state and um, leaving people to the market after mm. COVID. It's going to be very diff difficult for um, David Seymour to position himself after this. I think what's interesting as well is that um, what public, since we're supposed to be talking about the media as well, like public's, public perceptions of how we cover the election campaign, I think are going to change. I think there's going to be very little tolerance for that gotcha style. Um, politics that Neil mentioned, the, the, the sort of um, arguing over silly campaign videos, I think there is going to be so much uncertainty about you know, people's futures and their livelihoods, that they're going to want to know in great detail what the party's policies are and what they're going to do for them. And I think that um, the media is going to have to um, meet those expectations and do a really good job of covering the policies and not just the personalities in this election campaign. Well, we can hope. I mean, we probably say that in the run-up to every election. <laughs> wish, wish, wishful thinking. But, but, I, maybe, yeah. but maybe this time, of all the times, we'll finally get the policy-based campaign that every like politics nerd has been fantasizing about their entire lives. <laughs> yeah, maybe the reality's not so good after all, though. <laughs> that was so boring. <laughs> but, but I suspect the public will actually demand that a bit more than usual. Um, if you look at the US, for example, there's been a lot of commentary about how actually electing serious, competent people to positions of power. In times of affluence, you, you have the luxury of putting a you know a reality TV star in, in, into the presidency. When you've actually got life and death situations, people start realising that policy and competence matter. And I think that that means that people will be less... I think they'll take the selection a bit more seriously when they're actually, you know, not just their health, but their, li their livelihoods are on the line. Okay, yeah. well, I think that, that maybe seems a good place to leave it. Um... So, yeah, um, uncertain times and an uncertain future. So thanks for that, that cheery vision of, of <laughs> that incredibly bleak, semi-apocalyptic um, vision of uncertainty. Um, yeah, any, any final thoughts um, before we all sign out? No, I don't think so. Just hoping and praying for uh, level three. I never thought I'd say that, but God, I'm, I'm hanging out for some fried rice. <laughs> Um, I, I would just say that this this all might look ridiculous if we do end up in a very serious scenario. Um, I think if you, I don't want to sound all bleak and apocalyptic, but if you look back, <laughs> last time we had, you know, in the Great Depression, unemployment in capitalist countries was sort of 15 to 30%. And we had riots in Auckland, Wellington, Dunedin. We had the first Labour government. In America, we had the New Deal. In, the, in, in Germany, we had the rise of the Communist Party and the Nazis, and ultimately Hitler. So I think we shouldn't underestimate that... Um, 
there is a potential. I'm not. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but there is potential for the political order to realign significantly in the coming years, which may make yeah. even this look rather. Naive. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I. Yeah. I. Do, it could potentially be cataclysmic, but I do. I. You know. I wonder. Um, we're all a lot more affluent, and um, we've enjoyed. You know. It, unprecedented years of of being comfortable and um yeah I, I wonder if there's any great appetite for um for an overhaul of the entire world order i'm not i'm not sure we're i'm not sure a four weeks at home um will change that much but I, yeah you i mean you could you could be right but i or maybe i'm just wistfully hoping that things will just return to normal which is might be unrealistic but, but I, I do wonder if there'll be an intense nostalgia for normality hmm I, I certainly don't think at this stage people are uh, sort of yearning for complete upheaval. I think people just want to be, a, be able to go to the pub again and send their kids to school. But um, yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess all I'd say is none of us know anything and we'll see what happens and hopefully it works out for the best. I know, God. Shall we do another episode <laughs> when the entire world over is, order is overturned? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Kia ora e te iwi, te he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.